On this episode of Engineer Your Career, we talk with Marissa Weir, a lead front occupant safety performance integration engineer at General Motors. While originally planning on becoming a doctor, she earned bachelor's and master's degrees in biomedical engineering from Wayne State University with a specialization in injury biomechanics, and she was the first member of her family to earn a bachelor's degree. Marissa is an active member of the Society of Women Engineers, where she serves as a leadership coach and is the previous president of the SWE Detroit Professional Section. In our conversation, you'll hear how taking advantage of new opportunities is a common theme in her career journey and has allowed her to gain a wide range of experience even before she started working. Welcome, Marissa, to EYC. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Engineer Your Career. I am Brennan Timrak, and I'm joined with Troy. The infamous Troy, who is the best partner in podcasting that could ever exist. He got it right, folks. We gave him a, we gave him a second chance to is. give himself the intro, and he mm-hmm. nailed it. Yep. yep. Nailed Gotta it. step up. Good job. So yep. proud of you. I am so proud of myself. In addition to being proud of myself, I'm also proud of our guest, who is here today after kind of a, a random LinkedIn message. She supported it and she's here and we really appreciate it. Marissa, hi, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad that you can make it happen. Really, we're trying to continue to grow this podcast out to a bunch of people besides Michigan Tech and our closed network. And Marissa is a big part of that. So we appreciate you you're here and, and taking the time. Um, so as we do with all of our guests, I guess let's just get started with how you got to where you are today. Sure. So without going too far back, um, (laughs) go to my junior year of high school when I was really thinking about what I might want to study in college. I had told my family and friends my entire life that I wanted to be a pediatrician and go into the medical field. And uh, being raised as an academic overachiever and very competitive spirit, I was like, how can I stand out when applying to med school five and a half years from now. Yes, that was 16-year-old me. And so I was trying to figure out how do I do something a little bit more unique than just getting an undergrad in biology. So I started to explore different opportunities and potential majors and was watching an episode of 60 Minutes on CBS one night uh, about regenerative medicine and was mesmerized. I As think, a lot of 16-year-olds do, watching 60 Minutes on regenerative medicine. <laughs> yeah. I think it was one of those, like, my parents told me to come downstairs and, you know, you have to see this. And I'm like, okay, fine, dad. And then I was glued to the TV and giving presentations to my biology and anatomy classes the next week about how cool this new technology was. Um, so I was totally geeked out about it, hooked from the beginning, and uh ultimately decided to pursue my undergrad at Wayne State down in Detroit. So I lived there for four years, uh, living in Midtown and studying biomedical engineering. And the phenomenal thing about that undergraduate program was really that it was a cohort format. So we had less than 30 students going through the four years together. um, And we had a design lab every single semester. So I had eight Uh, engineering design courses and essentially different capstone projects throughout my curriculum that most people don't get exposure to until their senior year in engineering. So that was a really, really unique and awesome um, team building and just experience building and confidence building experience. And that's really great. Did you know about that before you started? Was that something you knew going into the program? Okay. Yeah. And that was a major, major selling point for me. Um, Also with Wayne State having one of the best medical schools in the country at the time, you know, I was Mm -hmm. like, all right, we're going to be super competitive. We're going to get tons of experience. And I'm only doing engineering so I can stand out to apply to med school. And so I... So you went into engineering with the purpose of it being your pre-med degree. I did. So on top of my biomedical engineering classes, I did all of the pre-med curriculum for two years. 
and checked every box, <laughs> was about to start studying for the MCAT and had an identity crisis where I was like, all right, um, I just took an anatomy, like a cadaver anatomy lab. I'm still afraid of needles. Maybe, maybe I'm not going to be the best doctor. You know, maybe there's another way for me to contribute in this field that doesn't involve me passing out in front of my child patients. <laughs> so uh, I had a long conversation with one of my mentors and um, really shifted my focus on um, instead of treating injury to focus on preventing it. And how could I use biomedical engineering and injury biomechanics to design um, systems and ultimately automotive is where I ended up, but to really prevent injury for people. Um, and to apply all of that medical anatomy, biomechanics knowledge in the field. That's awesome. This mentor sounds great. I'm curious, can you talk about him or her? How did how did you find them? Um, she was one of my first professors at Wayne State and someone that, um, that I really respected and looked up to and who was an expert in biomechanics. And so through talking with her about my career interests, I was able to pursue some undergraduate research in her lab and to learn a whole bunch of computational modeling tools to study uh, neonatal brachial plexus palsy and <laughs> recurrent laryngeal nerve injury. So I got to learn a whole bunch of finite element analysis tools and multidimensional body modeling um, that I was sent off campus and got trained in. And really, I was, I was exposed to tools that the automotive industry was using to study car crashes, but instead I was focusing on um, understanding the injury mechanisms during birth. And so totally different application of a very cool technology. And that was my exposure to undergraduate research ultimately led to me doing my thesis on that and then giving me a lot of experience that helped me to land my first job. That is awesome. I, I, I want to take a step back here because this is obviously very different than than the route either Troy or I took or a lot of people who get engineering into engineering uh, take. So when go, going back to high school a little bit, when you were saying, I want to go the engineering route to look unique for uh, for med school or something later on the line. What what were you thinking about in terms of where am I going to go to study this? Because I imagine that's a, probably a different set of criteria than I'm going to go be an engineer because I want to work on, you know, in X industry, automotive, whatever, uh, when it's I want to go engineering for the, for the pursuit of med school. Yeah, yeah. Um... So obviously, that's not at all the route that I went. But in making that decision back then, um, I was really looking for where are some of the best medical schools in the country. Uh, Detroit has one of the largest single campus medical schools with tons of different internationally acclaimed institutions around it from the Children's Hospital to Carmanos Cancer and just so many different institutions right there in Midtown walking distance from my campus. So I knew that there was this tight connection with the undergraduate and university faculty leading research and that there would be lots of, you know, right here, right now opportunities to do clinical externships, which I was able to pursue um, after my junior year where I got to shadow some neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons for my capstone project. Um, and yeah, there were just a lot of right here ties to, um, even if that wasn't the the medical school that I went to, knowing that all of that was right down the street was phenomenal. And then obviously the, the design element and the cohort small group element of the curriculum is really what helped me to feel confident stepping into the field of engineering that I previously knew almost nothing about 
like for example, in high school, I was so laser focused on being pre-med that I took every single chemistry, anatomy, vertebrates, biology, AP biology, everything in that realm and never took a physics course. So I was that engineer walking onto my first day of campus, you know, with AP calculus under my belt, but never had solved even the most basic physics problem. And what a culture shock. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, to, to highlight your point to also the theme that we've had in this podcast is what can you do in your degree that has a bunch of other things that can really help enhance it. And what I mean by like your undergraduate research, like pick an institution that'll give you the degree you want, but do they have connections that also help enhance that degree towards what you want? And to your point, it sounds like, I don't know, maybe you weren't articulating this exact way when you're younger, because, you know, how do you know? But like, if, if I'm going to a place that has has a medical school, then probably there's a, there's a good chance that even my engineering faculty will probably be doing research heavily related at, or they have colleagues and things that they're probably interacting with to do advanced research in this topic. And all that stuff has synergy and it builds on the, the degree program that you go into. I think even Adam in a couple episodes ago, he talked about how he went to University of Minnesota and that didn't have a lot of automotive connection. And he was trying to go into automotive and that was really hard. It's kind of like a, a thing like that. You like you want to go to a school that's going to enhance where you think you want to go. And you were able to do that with Wayne State. And by Midtown, for those listening in Detroit, uh, we're talking about Detroit, Michigan, Southeast Michigan. And that, I think that's a great way to do it. And I mean, I'm, you know, I said maybe you didn't know, but it sounds like for a 16, 17 year old, you, you knew a lot. I mean, to be able to pick that and to be able to, say like, this is going to benefit me to have all of this surrounding me, even just geographically. So I guess maybe at this point, let's, I guess, talk more about what, if this was your junior year, when did you start kind of thinking, well, maybe not med school? Uh, I was right after, so the summer after my sophomore year okay. um, was really yeah, right after I conveniently finished all the organic chemistry and every <laughs> lab that you need. And I was ready for the MCAT. I was like, are we going to start studying or are we going to be honest with ourselves? and say, I actually kind of really like this stuff. I'm just a little embarrassed that I didn't know that 15 years ago because what five-year-old picks their dream career and sticks with it? There's a few. I thought I had to be one because I was my whole life. But (laughs) once I finally got over that and was like, you know what? I kind of love this. This is so cool. I don't know anybody else in in my network that does this, but engineering is fascinating. And so that summer, I also took a big leap and decided to study abroad. There was a phenomenal opportunity um, to go spend six weeks in China uh, with a global engineering program, and it was cross-cultural engineering problem solving. So it wasn't just go to China, take a class at a Chinese university, and travel around. It was actually team-based, project-based master's course, essentially. And so we brought professors from our university that came and taught the class in English, Um, And we were divided up into teams of two American students and four Chinese students. And all of the teams were interdisciplinary. So they purposefully scattered us so that there was no more than one biomedical engineer, mechanical engineer, you know, chemical, aerospace, whatever it may be. We were scattered. And we were so we were not only cross-cultural, but also interdisciplinary. And we were learning how to work together and redesign some global transportation system concepts. And it was a fascinating experience uh, to really, you know, reach across the globe and go somewhere that I don't speak the language and to learn to build teams really quickly and design projects and pitch those to corporate executives in China after touring their companies. That just really opened my eyes to some of the stuff that I loved so much about engineering and particularly about BME in my curriculum was um, working cross-functionally. I have 
always love that. And I think a biomedical engineering degree really equips you well to do that no matter what industry you go into, because you're learning to, throughout that curriculum, you're learning to speak the language of uh, physicians or medical experts. You're learning to speak the language of researchers, but then you're also learning to bring in that super technical engineering background, whether you go you know, biomedical instrumentation, and you learn a lot more than nitty gritty electrical concepts or computer engineering, or you go biomaterials and learn to speak material science and chemical engineer language, or like me, I went biomechanics. And so I got to learn how to communicate really, really well with, with mechanical engineers and to translate those concepts and learnings to the human body in order to prevent injury. And so yeah, that was a that was a phenomenal test of what it would be like in the future to work for a global company and to work on teams that had, you know, different academic backgrounds than me, different cultural backgrounds than me, and how to get everybody to work together, um, build that rapport really quickly. Yeah, that sounds like a, a very unique and very awesome experience. And it, it, it seems like like what you explained here and explaining your your undergrad in general, like it was very uh, smaller team focused and like project based, uh, which is not something that you get in some larger programs um, that, that aren't as diverse. It's all, you know, here's some mechanical engineers who are all doing one thing or it's a whole class where you might spend a whole semester and just, you know, be solving problems, not actually solving problems by hand, not actually solving a real problem. And a project. Uh, what, I mean, to you, was that, has that been a, one of the more valuable aspects of your college education that you got? I mean, it sounds like it was in this China program, but also in the ones you were doing, you know, on campus. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that's definitely one of the most transferable sets of skills that I immediately took with me in my first job. Even when, you know, I, I started out as a finite element analysis engineer. So that was my first role because of my experience in undergraduate research, working with some similar software. And um, I had to learn a whole new suite of tools. So I had a ton of experience from undergrad and from my research, but they were all different, um, different suppliers, different brands of tools. So I was basically starting from square one with a little bit of background knowledge and uh, having all of that ability to learn how to work cross-functionally, how to ask the right questions, how to build teams, how to find mentors and, and, and rally groups and really ask for what I need and be specific was all stuff that I got from working in those cross-functional teams. And that helped me to launch my career with a lot of confidence, even though I was learning things from the ground up that I technically had a lot of conceptual knowledge of from school, but didn't have the boots on the ground practical expertise in those tools. Yeah. So I think what I'm kind of big picture hearing you say, like these, the, the really the benefit of these smaller projects, there's a kind of a couple kind of two different things that I think are key in my mind. One is the technical learning. Um, so that, that side where it's like, okay, having a, a big project really helps me learn technically helps me learn how to new, learn how to use new tools, helps me learn how to use the equations for a specific problem. But then the second big thing is also how to communicate in teams. How do you, I mean, we all have, I think all engineering degrees have at least some group project base, but if you're doing it constantly like that, your ability to learn how to communicate in a team and with other people, um, helps grow a lot there too, which is really, really great. Because as our podcast before this has exemplified many, many times, communication is critical once you get into the workplace. And so why not practice that more in the undergrad setting? I think um, it sounds like that program did that a lot more than I think, um, at least for sure mine did, but I think all our other guests would also say theirs did as well. So that's a, a very interesting takeaway there, those you know technical learning, but also communication learning by doing a bunch of those projects. Um, 
I think one of the other things that you, you mentioned earlier that I, that I really, really clung to is biomedical engineering, BME, as you, you acronymed it, um, as a very cross-discipline degree. And, you know, you said that and I was like, you know, okay. Because, like, you know, I think of mechanical engineering and it's like, okay, that's like mechanics. It's like, um, you know, mechan- it's like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like base. It's like a core function. You have, you know, electrical engineering. It's like a base. Okay. Then you have civil engineering. It's like, okay, we're designing trusses, things that don't move. Like it's, it's, then I think of biomedical engineering. It's like, wow, it is really, it's like learn. It's a bunch of everything. And, you know, one of the things I've come to realize as, as I experience more of engineering is the problems of tomorrow are across are broad. They're multidiscipline. It, th- things in mechanical engineering have been solved. Things in electrical engineering have been solved. A lot of things, even just talking to my fellow researchers, it's all multidisciplinary. My work with speaker technology is probably more electrical engineering than it is mechanical engineering, even though it's a mechanical engineering PhD. It's because the problems that are going to need to be solved in the future are a mix of all disciplines. And so there's, there's a huge advantage to an undergraduate degree where you're learning a bunch. And, you know, it's, it's definitely the, there's definitely the, the, you know, the, the jack of all trades is the master of none versus being a technical, very specific one thing. I mean, there's, there's benefits to both paths, but it's also good to be intentful about which path you're trying to go on and which one excites you more and which one's going to get you to the job that you want. And, I think it's great to to see biomedical engineering as that type of degree. And I mean, I, yeah, I think, I don't know, it just really kind of hit me like that, that, you know, it's, it's not trying to be its own core base thing. It's trying to be a, a culmination of mechanical, electrical materials, all of these things to come together to si- to solve, you know, human related engineering problems. And that, that's what it's trying to be. And it needs all that knowledge to do that. And I, I just think that's, you know, a, a different perspective than maybe I had, I had thought, and maybe I just hadn't thought about it enough before. So you go to this China experience. Can we talk about the communication side? When when you were doing that project, was most of it communication challenge? Was that like one of the harder parts of it is just communicating? I would say uh, yes. Communication was definitely a challenge, but not in the way you might expect. So all of our colleagues um, in this class, regardless of discipline, had conversational English skills. Um, and they were, you know, they were conversationally fluent in, in basic English. But what we were learning was master's level engineering concepts. And so we had to learn how to distill some of that down to a point where you could have a more colloquial conversation about it. So that was really um, an excellent experience in learning how to like the art of an executive summary or how to really simplify something to get your point across without, you know, all the jargon, all the details, all the math concepts and everything that can just be overloaded nitty gritty and how to explain it to someone that, you know, maybe doesn't have your, your background in engineering. Maybe they're not an engineer or maybe they're just an expert in another discipline. And how do you explain what you bring to the table and what your unique value is in that team? And that has been phenomenally valuable in my career. In, it, in being able to be that bridge or that link between disciplines or between two people in a meeting who work for different functions or have different backgrounds and are not saying the same thing. They don't hear each other. They're talking you know, back and forth, but they're getting nowhere because nobody can make that connection and their brains don't work the same way um, just because of their background experience and their head knowledge and everything else. And so that study abroad experience was a great way to build some of those skills and to be able to converse across disciplines with engineering, but also with non-engineers, because we, we were learning how to explain it at a level that people without an engineering background would still see the value. 
So if you're working with, you know, marketing or pitching to other functions that aren't maybe aren't as technical in your area, how do you get that point across? This was all in a six-week time period. These are something you learned that you were you had a very small time that you're taking with you like the rest of your career. It wasn't like years of thinking about this. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of trial by fire because it was like, you're either going to get credit for this class or you're not. Um, <laughs> and we, you know, it was, a t- it was a ton of hours and a ton of effort and we had homework every night. Um, but we also got to go away on the weekends and learn how to build teams. And yeah, I think it's something that I didn't, I knew it was valuable at the time, but I didn't realize just how much I would leverage those skills until a couple of years later when I was like, wow, where did this start? Where was that spark? Um, and I think it was really on that study abroad experience. Yeah, it definitely seems like that. That's an opportunity for anyone listening. If you have an opportunity like that, uh, it sounds like Marissa saying, take advantage of that. It could be a way bigger opportunity you think it could be. Um, let's go go back 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 to the USA. You're you're in you're in your final years of undergrad. Uh, what what are you thinking about? You decided you don't want to go down uh, the medical route, and you're switching to engineering. What what's going through your head? Yeah, so I basically just decided to go all in. Um, and focused on doing injury biomechanics. I got to pick my electives for my junior and senior year in that realm um, and was also also fortunate enough to be able to apply for an accelerated graduate enrollment program, which would let me take a few uh, master's level electives toward my undergraduate credits and ultimately help me to finish my master's degree a little bit faster in the future. So I got to dive even deeper, um, take some higher level courses that I would otherwise not have had the privilege to take and really just dig into things like finite element analysis and injury biomechanics and everything else that I pursued in my master's degree, automotive engineering, that kind of stuff. I'm curious as to your reflection now that you've gone through and kind of did that. I mean, maybe there'd be people listening who are like, well, that sounds like a lot to add graduate level classes to my undergrad. Cause you know, you might, for those looking, you might look at it and say, well, a graduate student maybe takes nine credits full time. They take three classes. And, you know, so graduate courses are a lot of work, it sounds like, and add that to an undergraduate curriculum. I, I guess your reflections on how burdensome the load was. And then I guess also, you know, your, you know, your technical takeaways. So I was strategic about when I took which graduate level courses. And I did definitely lean on my network to decide which ones made the most sense to take in a particular semester. And in, just in terms of like homework course load. Uh, mainly in hours of work outside of class that I would need to prepare. And so when I decided that I wanted to go injury biomechanics route, I knew that we had a master's degree really focused on that specialty. And that was something that I did want to pursue now that I decided I was doing engineering. And my plan from then on was either to get a job immediately out of undergrad and pursue my master's part-time, which is plan A worked, worked out for me this time. Uh, That's what I did. But my plan B option was if I don't get a job right out of undergrad in a field that I want locally so that I can finish my degree at Wayne State, then I was going to go full time and finish my master's in a year. And so with, you know, with that focus, I kind of was able to build my master's plan of work during my undergrad and decide which which courses made sense to take as undergraduate electives based on course load and then maybe putting off some of the ones that would need a more heavy homework focus since I took them one at a time throughout most of my part-time master's evening courses while I was working full-time. 
Well, that's a good thing. I mean, it's nice that it works out too. Cause I mean, I don't, some graduate programs may not even have all classes that you can take at night too. So, you know, maybe you can work it out where you're doing, I don't know. The, the senior, some people call it senior ruling too, where you take grad classes, but it sounds like this was not even quite senior ruling. This was like a way, I don't know. I guess you have to talk to your advisor. They may call it different things, but essentially for those like you can take graduate classes at an undergrad and have them count towards your graduate degree. And that's awesome that you're able, or even double, did, were they double counting? Is that they were double counting, yeah. So okay. that was the best part. I would definitely recommend anybody who has a high enough GPA to look into those programs yeah. because they not only make it faster to complete your master's degree mm-hmm. in the future, but they save you a ton of money because you are paying undergraduate tuition for a graduate level course. It isn't, yeah. No, that's great. A wonderful yeah. opportunity, and and to really ultimately get your feet wet in maybe more of that specialty that you think you want to pursue as a master's, but you're, maybe you're not entirely sure. So you're going to go all in as an undergrad your last year and, you know, take one or two courses in that specialty, pay less tuition for it, give it everything you've got. And if you decide a year from now, because you're working somewhere else that, you know, that wasn't really the right route for you, or maybe that master's degree isn't something that you want, um, no harm, no foul. You didn't pay master's tuition for it. You're not halfway done with a degree. You're done with your bachelor's degree and you had some deeper level exposure to the field. I, I think what you said there about how you can kind of test out a master's degree before you really full, you know, dive headfirst into it is actually a really good point because there are a lot of people who say, well, I, I finished an undergrad. I think I want to go get the master's now. Uh, I'm going to go do this. And then you might find out, you know, a, a year in that you're stuck working on some project or something for some advisor that you don't want any part of. And you're like, what do I do? Do I, do I finish it out and be miserable? Do I cut my losses and leave? And there's a bunch of money left on the table. So I think that's a really good option that you mentioned is if a place off, offers it to be able to, to see what graduate school is like before you're leaving and still being able to use all that for your undergrad. So you, you talk about doing this part-time while you were getting a job, which means you got a job then after undergrad. So let's, let's talk about what job hunting, uh, you knew you were kind of interested in automotive because what your mentor said, what, what was the process you went through there? Cause that can always be a, a stressful and, uh, interesting time for a lot of people trying to get that first job. Absolutely. So, um, excited to dive into this because it's a really exciting experience. Um, I finished polishing my resume, you know, during the summer between my junior and senior year of undergrad. Uh, that was when I did my last internship and had was kind of wrapping up on my undergraduate thesis work. And, you know, my <laughs> I joked that my full-time job at the time after finishing that internship that fall was to find a full-time job. Uh, yes, of course, I had coursework, but I went all in on that and was started reaching out to people in my network. So I was super, super involved with student organizations uh, in the College of Engineering throughout my entire undergrad. And that gave me a massive network, not only at the university level, but also within local alumni and industry contacts at local companies. And the place that I ended up finding my job was not through our school career fair, which of course I was at, but was through the Society of Women Engineers National Conference. Uh, Their career fair is, I am not biased when I say this, literally the best career fair for engineering graduates. You do not have to be a woman to be a member. And it's a phenomenal conference with one of the biggest career fairs in the country. Um, and so many industries represented. And so I went to that conference in October of my senior year and pitched my 
itself like crazy to every, I had a strategy when I went in, I knew what, what companies I wanted to talk to, um, and had, you know, those two minute conversations where I gave them my resume, told them about my experience, had my elevator pitch ready and, uh, was able to get a few interviews scheduled for the next day actually, because it was a couple of few days long conference and they had interview booths on site, which is another huge perk of that type of conference. And I know now they do the same thing, but virtually. So they have virtual interview booths. But um, that was an amazing opportunity. I had no idea I'd land an interview on site at the conference. And then ultimately that led to engineering final rounds interviews right after. So it was a pretty quick whirlwind where within a couple weeks, of going to that conference and talking to everybody that I had a job offer before Thanksgiving and, and locked that in. And so I, I launched my career at General Motors uh, back in 2016. That's awesome. Oh, man. It's, it's, I'm glad. It sounds like a great experience. I'm really, really glad. You know, you hear so many horror stories of people struggling for months to find jobs and things. And it sounded like it, it really worked great. And what I love about this story, too, is also like you're, you're leveraging other things besides just the school. The school is important, but your ability to leverage your other network can be critically important, can be the main thing. And it was for you. And I, I think that's great for those listening, whether you're in or outer school, like if you're, tra- even if you're working right now and you're trying to, you know, uh, find a different job, like there's, all of your networks are, are options um, to be able to to find different things. And who knows, you know, it may just be a conversation that doesn't work out this time, but who knows, maybe five, 10 years from now that, that might come back up. Okay. So you're at the conference. There's a, a lot going on. I guess what, what's it like to be a biomedical engineer there? What's, what's that experience like? So it's very unique and challenging, but exciting at the same time. I would say that as a biomedical engineer, you have a little bit more work to do to m- make a presence and uh, make yourself known at the conference because there are companies that are a little bit closed-minded sometimes about what types of disciplines they're willing to hire or what specific quota they are looking for within their organization. And I would say don't let that deter you. If you're passionate about working for that company or for their vision um, and the products that they do as a biomedical engineer, depending on your specific niche within the field, you have a lot to offer particularly if you have that interdisciplinary experience, uh, hands-on design project experience, undergraduate research, you know, what electives you took in undergrad that were in a more, in a more specific field, such as, you know, electrical and computer engineering, or if you have a lot of expertise in materials, you can lend that to different companies that might not even think about biomedical engineering. And I think the script is changing uh, these last few years, but, you know, maybe a decade ago, it was, nearly impossible to get it <laughs> to really get a job without an in as, as a BME uh, without a ton of connections within your network. You know, just to cold call a company and say that I have this background, I have this degree, and I really am going to add value in this way. And I think that's just because some, some HR professionals, you know, they have a list and they don't understand what your degree is and they don't have time to figure it out. And they're talking to 500 people today. But um, I think that's really where the art of you know, the elevator pitch and, t- and capitalizing on your unique experience, not only your key coursework that's super relevant to their industry, but also your extracurricular involvement, be it research, leadership and student organizations, competition teams, which is like eco car, warrior racing, that kind of stuff. Uh, those are all things that you can leverage at a career fair. And just because they are big sign overhead doesn't say that they're hiring BMEs doesn't mean that you don't have something to bring. 
That's a really good point is that in, in today's world, especially, uh, a lot of places I feel are looking at the person, not necessarily uh, the paper. You got you to have the, the resume, right, to get in there sometimes, depending on how you're doing it. But a lot of people are looking at the people and what they've done. And so I think that's that's a really good, um, a really good observation. And, and I and I'm not a I'm not a BME, so I can't specifically say it about it. But I'm sure that, that there are lots of people out there will take uh, will take that message uh, and use it. Um, so. I guess I have a question. Would you? So you got your your job offer from from General Motors, and you you interviewed with them. Did you also interview at any other places because of the conference or not? Yeah, I did have a few other interviews and and some options to consider. Ultimately, what I was really looking for, besides the ability to finish my master's degree uh, within the Metro Detroit area, was the opportunity to work in a rotational program. I really wanted that rotational early career leadership development experience of uh, particularly if I was going to work at a huge Fortune 500 company, I wanted to see the big picture. I wanted to not only know, you know, one specific job role, but to have exposure and to build my network across the different functions and really understand how everything worked together. And maybe that's because of my, you know, systems and integration passion that clearly brought me through BME and ultimately to automotive. But that was a huge selling point for me. Um, in starting my career there. And it was a a two-year rotational development program where we had a few different uh, assignment opportunities and and exposure. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of companies, especially big companies that are doing rotational programs. And I think um, it's definitely something to to look forward to. And, you know, I'd love to have you kind of expand on how you approached it. So, you know, to give advice to those entering um, rotational programs, you know, because I sometimes think people who enter them think like the goal is like technical success, but it's, it's, you comment down, right? And like network and there's, there's these other really big benefits of the rotational program. You know, I guess that being someone who's kind of gone through one, I guess going, what mindset would you recommend going into it um, for those who are kind of starting them or, or hope to start them? Yeah. So first of all, in terms of uh, interviewing for rotational programs, because they are generally different than a, a normal uh, job posting is you still do want to have a specific vision for your career or at least where you want to start and what you bring to the table. So uh, one of the worst things you could do is just say, I have no idea what I want to do. And that's why I'd love to be in a rotational program. So you can just put me somewhere and then move me somewhere else. And maybe I'll figure it out along the way. That is not what hiring managers want to hear. They want to know, you know, your current passion, but also that you're open to exploring other opportunities and knowing that once you're in and once you're learning that first job that you're building your network in other areas, learning about different functions, different jobs that you didn't even know existed, and that you are um, going to continue to to develop and explore along the way and, and follow your passion as your career and experience evolves. Yeah, let's talk about what, I guess, what rotations did you do then as part of this? You're, for two years, you're going through different ones. Uh, what did you, were you able to see all of the company like you'd kind of hope to and get all that in? Um, but what was that like? So I, because I came in with, you know, half a master's degree essentially in biomedical engineering, and I was fortunate enough to start my career in the, in the safety um, computer-aided engineering space, I knew I wanted to be in safety. Like that was my, that was my calling. Injury biomechanics, I was like, safety is where I want to be within automotive. I love this. And so I ultimately ended up spending two years technically within that greater organization, but I worked for very different teams. And my uh, diversity of experience really went from me working on, in my first year, very, very 
early stage programs that were just, you know, coming out of studio concept development where they're rough sketches and we're trying to figure out what are our uh, targets and metrics and are we going to get there? And then following that program all the way until production in my second rotation. And so we have different groups that work on programs in different stages of the vehicle development process. And, it, you know, our traditional vehicles take four or five years to develop. So we're talking about stuff that isn't even on the road yet. So how do, were you able to, from that select, which group you landed in after this? Or how did, how did, did you already kind of know where you were going to be while you were going through that? So uh, we had the opportunity to choose or vote for our rotations as we went through. And there were uh, networking opportunities throughout with lots of career development tips and, and resume refinement and interviewing and everything else uh, that, was, that was conducted by the program. But then we also got to be our own best advocate as far as deciding where we wanted to go next and what we were interested in. And so the program really empowered us to do that and to look around and see what else is out there. We were networking through lots of events, not only with other hiring managers and other departments and other leaders within the company, but also our own peers who worked in different functions. And, you know, maybe they came into into our team after having spent a year somewhere else in an area that we had never heard of. And so we got to learn, oh, what was your day to day like in that job? And, you know, is that something that I think I'd enjoy Um and ultimately, even the first cohort that I started with of about 10 engineers, most of them are in completely different functions now. And that is really cool to think that I have close friends and contacts in my network that work in all different areas of the company. And, uh, you know, that I can still reach out to if I have a question about what are you guys doing in this area or how does this work or I don't understand this job, but hey, we work together for a year. So how are you? <laughs> um, and that's a really, really valuable takeaway. Yeah, having people that you get to to experience things with, because because again, I guess I think about it like you had you had your cohort in undergrad and you worked through them and you did projects, and now you kind of have a similar thing going through um going through the first few years of, of your career, like that that seems like it was highly valuable to you and that it, it led you to gain skills in different areas, and so how. You mentioned this a little earlier when you talked about uh, the project in China and how you translate that into your career. But what are what are some of these things um, working with people now in in industry, going through with them that you've kind of learned and taken with you um, once you exited that program and have been working your job? Like, is it was it more teamwork skills? Was it more communication? Was it technical? Uh, what is what has been some of the extra value there that you find yourself applying every day? Yeah, so definitely. I mean, teamwork is a huge part of what we do. Communication is absolutely a huge realm of skills that we were able to develop through the rotational program. I think one of the things that I've leveraged the most is the technical depth that I got in that first rotation and understanding how really in detail how how the um, virtual crash models work. Because now that I'm on the performance side and I work with hardware and there's lots of uh, pressure to leverage our virtual models, being able to speak the language of those teams that do the virtual work with a group that is so experienced in hardware. Uh, in, in some cases, we're talking decades of experience in the performance and validation space, being able to bring them up to speed with the latest tools or to translate between what our virtual team is saying um, about their models or what's what their capability is in different areas and what they can and can't do, what's quick and what takes a week to get an answer on, uh, being able to 
translate that and, you know, be the bridge between those two functions has really, really been a huge asset to me, to my current team and my current space. Um, and I've actually had the opportunity recently to lead a cross-functional uh, design thinking project between my old organization in CAE and my safety performance organization to reimagine the way that we work together uh, going toward looking toward the future. And so that was something that was nominated by my directors uh, to be able to lead that function because of my relatively parallel number of years of experience in each function. That's awesome. That sounds like a great experience. It sounds like people are noticing your ability to, to um, I don't know, exude or, or really enjoy that environment. I mean, I think it's, it's okay for those listening to say that, you know, I, I don't necessarily like working in teams. Maybe, you know, I, th- I think it's part of your personality, Marissa. I mean, that, that's, that allows you to excel in these conditions. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. And, and it sounds like you're really leveraging it because you love it and that's great. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's people out there that, that that's not their cup of tea. And that's totally fine, too. And leverage that, you know, however that works for you. But it's 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 what I love about your story thus far. You know, you continue to leverage what you love. And in in some ways, you know, it, it just kind of continues to grow with that. But, but I, I don't I think there's a synergistic aspect to that, too. Like when you're when you're constantly giving yourself opportunity to get involved in the things you enjoy in, in your case, cross-functional teams and even like this, uh, the amount of technicalness that you're getting into, like you're, you're going to enjoy it and you're going to, you're going to do well. Like, I mean, you're going to, because the, I don't know, it's just, you're, it's so much easier to go to work and be excited about what you're working on than go to work and like hate it or like it'd be a huge pain. It sounds like you're not doing that every day. I mean, I, I can really tell that just by how excited you get about what you talk about. I think that's just a great example for those listening, you know, like what are the things about your job that, you know, you really get excited about and that, you know, you just kind of like naturally flow into and how can you, how can you grow that more? Can you go talk to your director and say, Hey, like, can, is there a way for me to do some kind of cross collaboration? Or, you know, even if your company doesn't have a rotational program, is there, can you make your own? Like, if that's something that you're interested in, is there a way for you to kind of create those opportunities? I feel like in a large way, you're, you're doing that for yourself and it sounds like it's working out great. And I'm just trying to elaborate that for those that are listening is, um, I think to some extent you can create your own destiny. It sounds like General Motors, it sounds like does a fantastic job in providing those opportunities. Um, but equally important to that is you've taken advantage of those. You've signed up for them and you've really tried to grow in them. So I guess transitioning out of the rotational program, I guess let's walk through that. And what, what was that like? I've always wondered, you know, for those that do the rotational program, what is it like going to the place where you're going to be forever or yeah, I don't know, however it feels? I'm curious about your experience doing that. Yeah. So toward the end of the rotational program, uh, we had once again, the cross-functional opportunity to look at a long list of assignments that were available in areas that were hiring um, and to think about where we really wanted to take our career from here. And you're absolutely right in terms of everybody gets a little bit like sweaty palms at that point where they're like, oh no, this is my real job. (laughs) Uh, Not that the work we were doing before by any means was like an internship level. It was definitely a professional responsibility and accountability, but to look at something and say, there isn't a guaranteed you're done with this in six months and moving on to something else date. Uh, so there was a level of, of, you know, seriousness there that I think we, we all took seriously. But at that stage, I was really trying to think about what I enjoyed most about my current role, but where I wanted to grow. And it was a little bit less focused on a specific job title so much as it was an experience that I wanted to gain. And that's something that I would really encourage a lot of people to lean into is, you know, not to be so wrapped up necessarily in, I want this to be my title or I want this job, but to think about what aspects of your 
your current role or your current education or your current experience that you really love. Like you were talking about um, being in the flow or, you know, when you're just in your element and you're going and you're enthusiastic, you lose track of time because you are just so in the zone. And how can you capitalize that on that in your next role? Um, And so I was seeking out a variety of different functions to think about you know, what did I want my day-to-day life to be like? And, and where did I really want to gain more experience? And in my case, since I had two years of virtual, of, you know, virtual analysis experience, I really wanted hands-on hardware validation experience. I wanted to see the end product. I wanted to crash physical vehicles into barriers with million-dollar dummies and tons of instrumentation inside and know that I only had, you know, one or two shots to get the answer right. And, and, you know, you can just resubmit another model and, and try again tomorrow <laughs> because there is that crunch time toward the end of a program when we're really crashing prototype vehicles is a huge, huge undertaking. And there's a ton of pre-work that goes up into that in the years leading up to the point where we have those test properties available. And so I did interview with quite a few different functions and talk to a lot of different managers Something that I did before even formal interviewing that I think is extremely valuable uh, for anyone who's considering, you know, a new rotational position or or a new step in their career is to do informational interviews where you reach out to either hiring managers or mentors or even colleagues that, you know, they're at your same level. They can't hire you, but they work in that function that you're kind of curious about and ask them if you can sit down for a cup of coffee and learn more about their job and their day to day and what they love about what they do. That's a great question to ask to really get an understanding of um, what the roles are and how their team functions and what their organizational culture is. And then if you can see yourself there. So it's really those types of conversations are less about yourself. And, uh, you know, it's not an interview where you're pitching yourself. It's you learning everything you can about that group or that team or that culture. And that's something that I did with every single hiring manager that uh, as well as one or two members of their team before I formally interviewed with them to make sure that I felt like I knew enough about the job and I wasn't just, you know, reading a job description <laughs> before going in. Um, and that gave me a lot of confidence too when I, when I ultimately made my, my final decision to, to pursue safety performance as my next step. I think that's a really good tip about doing those informational interviews with a manager, but also with someone who does that job, because uh, the manager doesn't do that job. They uh-huh. manage the people who do it. Uh, so they they have some perspective of what their employees do, but not necessarily on a, on a day-to-day, uh, you know, details level, um, on the details level, I guess. So I think that's a really good tip is for anyone out there who's thinking about moving within their company or even outside of their company, uh, to really make sure you're talking to someone who does the job that you're interested in doing. Um, otherwise, you you may learn about something that's not quite the exact same. And when you get there, you might uh, you might you might be disappointed or you might be really excited, uh, depending on what details are missed. Um, so I think that's really great. I, c- can you, I guess, talk to us a little bit on the on the technical side here? You're talking about validating hardware for safety. Um, what does that exactly mean? You're, you're crashing cars, so we can we think about maybe those, those commercials where you see a car crash into a wall, uh, but what does that actually mean for safety? What are you looking at? What are the parts? What are the metrics? Um, give us a little bit of insight into that. Yeah, so there is so much um, from federal regulations, so like NHTSA, uh, National Highway Traffic Safety Institute, and IHS consumer metrics, so those types of things that get a lot of flashy, you know, five-star crash test ratings, 
that mean a lot to consumers. Um, and then also a lot of internal performance requirements that go above and beyond what the federal and consumer metrics are. And so we are testing to validate every single one of those things for every vehicle program. And so that means we've got people in safety that are specialized on structure and who have a really finite materials background and or mechanical engineering. And they're experts on uh, figuring out how to design like the front structure of a vehicle or the side structure of a vehicle to withstand crash forces and to be able to protect the occupant, um, prevent any issues with like fluid leaks or fire hazards or anything else in that realm. Um, And then we've also got people like myself who have a much more occupant-focused expertise. So I really focus on tuning things like seat belts and airbags and seats and any of their interior restraint content to manage the forces on people within a crash. And, And we look at that for our smallest occupants. So we're talking about babies in car seats all the way up through the the tallest heaviest adults um, and then being able to manage the same seatbelt uh, or same airbag for all of those different sizes in a variety of positions at a variety of speeds uh, that you could be impacting anything from a flat barrier to something at an angle to another vehicle to a pole um, and so it's a lot of balancing and optimizing a variety of systems. And so in safety integration, we don't own any of those systems, but we own the performance and the protection of the people within the car. So we have to work really closely with um, design and release engineers or component uh, leaders in different areas of the company who actually own the parts of the car um, or those subsystems in order to, to maximize our performance. And so we do a lot of upfront work and test planning and working with our, our virtual teams to conduct those virtual crash tests so that ultimately when we get to running sled or uh, barrier tests out at our proving grounds, uh, that it's that it's really a validation activity where we're, we're confident in, in what we know we're going to see happen. And that ends up being our, our final data that we're able to produce um, before selling the vehicle and doing the final sign off to say that we trust we're going to protect our customers. It sounds like a lot. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, I, yeah. So what, like how, what does that translate into your, your day to day? I mean, a lot of Excel sheets where you're trying to like plan out testing matrices or is a lot of, I mean, a lot of coordination with other groups, I guess, how, what is, what does your typical day look like if there is a typical one? Yeah. So typical days definitely change depending on the stage of the program that we're in. So when, when, when we're in those really, really early development phases where there's a lot going on in design and, you know, they're sketching everything out and trying to figure out who's our target customer for this vehicle and what's it going to look like and what are the new features that we're bringing in. Um, in those times, we're really focused on safety strategy and defining, you know, what are our targets for these uh, federal regulations or even our internal regulations? What what threshold do we want to meet? Um, it's almost never, you know, what's the legal limit? It's how far beyond that do we want to go? Because what do our customers care about uh, who will be driving this vehicle? Um, and then so not only safety strategy and defining that because that dictates what type of uh, features we put in in the vehicle structurally and otherwise, but also being involved in a lot of uh, compartment integration meetings. And so those are when people are sketching out and trying to figure out 
how different things package within a vehicle and where they can fit and which zones are appropriate and which ones are not and advocating for safety best practices um, in a lot of those types of meetings and saying, no, you can't design it that way because it won't protect us for this specific load case or I need this to be there for this type of crash because it's important to this size occupant and really being the advocate and the voice for the, the people who will be riding or driving our vehicles in the future way up front. And then later in the in the development process, once we start to have some hardware available, we'll be meeting with our virtual engineers who do a lot of the CAE models and do virtual crash testing, analyzing occupant injury numbers and looking at, you know, how does their head interact with the airbag and, you know, how much chest compression are we seeing in this case or is that uh, knee contact above or below the the injury threshold or where we need it to be and how can we redesign this part to better mitigate the injury because really with with crash worthiness and vehicle safety the the principle that we're that we're operating to is that there's three elements of a crash this is super quick to explain but hopefully it'll give you a little bit more context and the first one is that the vehicle crashes into a barrier or another vehicle. So that's the vehicle crashing into a thing. Then there's the person crashing into the vehicle interior. Ideally, you're wearing your seatbelt and you technically your body crashes into the seatbelt and the airbag supports you. And then finally, there's the internal crash and that's your organs into your skeleton. And so all three of those things have a potential to influence uh, what types of injuries you may or may not sustain. And so those are all of the different parts that we're working to. And analytically, we have very fidelic uh, human body models that we're able to to analyze uh, those types of injuries and really predict what we're going to see. But when we get that first hardware and it's, you know, prototype or, or really early stuff and we mock it up together in a vehicle environment and run it on a sled at a certain speed and understand how, how predictive our models were. Um, and what we need to maybe go back and tune and how can we change, you know, the time that airbags deploy or the size of the vents or how much the belt pays out or that kind of thing. All of those factors we're tuning and tuning and tuning and then we get our final barrier vehicles. And that's when we have a full prototype vehicle and we're out of the proving grounds and we are, you know, hooking it up to a chain, a tow hook, and throwing it at a wall and signing off on our on our final validation. So it definitely changes based on, you know, whether we're in the early math stages where we're doing a lot of virtual stuff all the way through uh, virtual analysis, crash models, and then when we're running the tests. And everything we do up front helps to build our confidence into how we go into that hardware testing phase. Because once you're there, you're already building vehicles and you're this close to launching and you have no time for error. <laughs> well, and you're doing this for multiple programs at the same time, I guess, to illustrate that for, for people, you know, you may be at early stages on one program, but at the same day, having a meeting right after the vert, the initial planning meeting for, Hey, we got parts for this, this platform. We're doing this now. Right. So you're supporting, you're, you're doing that, that, that myriad of things, but for multiple programs all in the same time. So mm-hmm. it, it so you can so your day to day may may change too because you know how how many programs do you have that are early right now and what that mix looks like at any given time. So it sounds like you can be doing a lot of different things and there really isn't a a typical day. Yeah, so there's a ton of there's a ton of variety and that's one of the things that I really love about it. Um, so there'll be weeks where I'm like out at the proven grounds for a couple weeks dealing with a lot of hardware, 
uh, setting up parts, measuring tests and collecting data and iterating and, and rerunning that. And then there's other times where I'll spend a couple weeks and I'm just at home or maybe go into the proving grounds one day a week. Um, but I, I love the variety. That's something that, that gives me a lot of excitement because there is those, that ebb and flow of, of workflow and how at different stages of the program, I work more heavily with different groups. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I, I feel like I could ask a ton of questions on this, uh, learn more about what I'm missing in the 20-year-old death trap car that I drive and what there is new today. Um, but uh, I, I'm going to transition a little bit before I run out of time to what uh, what you're doing now. We, we talked about we talked about SWE before and it helped you get a job, and you're still uh, involved in that now, even though uh, you're working and not necessarily in, from the from the college side of it. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you're doing uh, with Society Women Engineers today? Yeah, absolutely. So I have been uh, involved with SWE since my freshman year of undergrad, and it was something that was so valuable to me that I decided to join as a professional member immediately once I graduated. And I've been involved with the Detroit section of the Society of Women Engineers. We've got over 700 members in the metro area. And over the last few years, I've held several different leadership roles uh, within our professional society. Most recently, I was pa- I was president last year. I just finished up my term in June. And so that was a phenomenal leadership opportunity to really engage not only with other professional members, but with the community through outreach initiatives that get more K through 12 students uh, involved and excited about STEM fields and their potential careers in in engineering. Um, and then also just, again, building my network above and beyond uh, my, my field and my industry. Our section was recently awarded the the gold award for a professional section and also best practice for outreach. So that was a really exciting news that we just heard two weeks ago. Um, And then beyond the professional section, I've recently gotten involved at the society level as a leadership coach. Uh, I just finished my training a few months ago there, and now I'm able to support 10 collegiate and professional sections nationwide, uh, really equipping their leadership teams with uh, tools and resources and tips and tricks on how to run and manage their sections um, in their different geographic areas and collegiate environments and, and professional situations uh, to really leverage all of the resources that the society has available to them and help them grow uh, as nonprofit leaders. That's amazing. Um, congratulations. That's, that's fantastic. Really. That's, it's, it sounds like, I mean, yeah, you, you're getting, you're still getting a lot out and you're give, giving a lot out too. Um, you know, I think one for people listening something, well, I don't have time or I don't, I, how did you, how do you approach it? How, how does your mind work in that way that maybe others can benefit? Yeah. Um, so I definitely understand the time argument. And some of my philosophies around that are really that um, you can balance things if you have the long-term view in mind and if you look at the big picture. And that, yes, it's very important to recognize that anything we say yes to is an automatic no to anything else we could be doing at that time. So you say yes to going to a conference. You could be home going to brunch with your friends or you know having a game night. But um, really empowering yourself to make proactive and conscious choices, looking at the big picture long-term, who you are now, who you want to be, and and what's going to help you build skills to get there. Because I think it's really important to have a network outside of just the students within your class or within your major, and also outside of the immediate team that you work with right now in your career. Um, 
and that there are so many skills you can build by stepping out of your comfort zone and being involved in nonprofits. And to the to the point about giving back, um, that's something I definitely hear a lot of people say like, oh yeah, you know, when I'm old and retired, I want to be a philanthropist or yeah, at this later point in my career, you know, then I'll be a mentor. And I would challenge you that you have experience that is valuable already that can help other people coming up behind you, even if they're only a year behind you in their degree program. Um, and that you have a lot of advice and experience that can be extremely valuable to other people. And so really pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone is the only way that you're going to grow. And um, leveraging some of these nonprofit organizations or ways that you can give back can help you to find other mentors and sponsors or advisors that will help you in your career, but also in your personal life um, and can also help you to discover some of your passions that you might not have found just by sticking, you know, strictly within your professional engineering niche. Amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's so easy to not think about the big picture. I don't know. It's, it, you know, it's hard, it's unknown, but I, you know, those exercises in doing that, I mean, it's how you be intentful about where you're going. You know, if, if for those that are listening, you're, you're already starting to do that by listening to this podcast. You're thinking like, okay, what, what do I got to be thinking about in the future to become and get to the position I want to be? Um, and so c- continuing to do that. Um, you know, and as we wrap up here, I really, just, I have just one last question that, you know, I, I really just want to ask, cause I hear your, your, your story, you know, all these things. And one thing that just continues to stand out to me so much is how the heck you figure out what you should be doing at any given time. And I don't know how to best phrase this question, but the examples that come to mind, how you knew you wanted to go into biomed, how you picked that, how you, how you knew that you should be doing informational interviews. And that would be helpful. I just, there's so many examples in your story of you're, you're doing these things, um, that are really helpful. And maybe it's just about you constantly thinking about that big picture, but, um, you know, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out what my question here is because I, I don't even know how you do it, but how, yeah. So how are you figuring out what you should be doing at any given moment? I, like to, to be moving yourself forward. I, I think it's a great question. It's definitely rambly and hopefully my answer will follow the same trajectory, but also add a lot of value. Okay, me too. Um, so, <laughs> so in terms of that, um, I would say it's really important to take some time to reflect uh, just personally, and own your whole story. Even the parts that you might not want to tell people like, oh, I, it's embarrassing that I told everybody I wanted to be a pediatrician for 15 years and then had to go back and be like, P.S. mom and dad, it changed my mind. I'm going to be an engineer. And they're like, what's an engineer? We love you. But yeah, so own your whole story and um, you know, know your entire path that got you to where you are today, but also stay curious and open to learning from everybody who crosses your path, not just your professors in class, but also, you know, your other students, people who are around you, um, events that you go to. If you stay open and curious to learning from lots of people, you'll be able to build a lot of skills that you might not otherwise have had an opportunity to do. You know, if you're like, I'm only going to learn from these few people or from these few authors, then you're really narrowing your vision. Um, and not giving yourself that opportunity to grow. But also, I think it's important to cultivate adaptability when things don't go according to plan. Because it is likely that you'll pivot. And that can be a beautiful thing. I pivoted my career path without changing my major. 
because I was able to leverage a lot of the skills that I was building and to advocate for myself. And then embracing a breadth of interest as new opportunities arise that might not have been on your radar when you started pursuing your degree. Whether that is an opportunity to explore the fringes of your comfort zone, something that makes you a little bit uncomfortable and you're like, oh, maybe this would help. But also it's really scary to study abroad in a country where I don't speak the language or to apply for undergraduate research when I have absolutely zero lab experience or zero computational modeling experience. Or it's terrifying to run for a leadership position in a student organization if you've never had a leadership role before or if you don't think of yourself as a leader. But uh, spoiler alert, you are and you can be. And then um, other things like applying for awards or scholarships, that can be scary too. When you like lean into that discomfort and just go for it because what's the worst that can happen? Honestly, you don't get it and you try again or you learn something through the experience of just applying. Um, same thing goes for entering into design competitions or you know, trying to go for a patent on an invention that you're working on or presenting at a conference um, or even interviewing for an internship or a co-op or asking someone to be your mentor. All of those things um, kind of really bring me back to this philosophy that that I've tried to fully embrace in my life. And that's um, a quote by Susie Kasem that says, doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will. And being okay to fail. Because um, First of all, you will you will succeed more times than you fail a lot of times when you when you put everything you've got into something. And then also, I just I guess I want to encourage everybody to continue to pay it forward along the way. I also believe that we rise by lifting others and that it's never too late to start giving back and sharing the lessons you've learned along your own journey. That is awesome. Great advice. We normally ask people any any last advice, but I think I think that was it and some extra that you that you gave to everyone listening and and to me personally. So thank you. This is this has been a great uh, a great conversation hearing your story, Marissa. Like you have done some amazing things. I'm sure you're going to go on and do even more. Uh, I would not be surprised if we hear about you high up uh, in in GM or wherever you choose to be someday. So yeah, thanks thanks for coming on the show. It's been an awesome hour and uh, hour and a little bit here talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited at this opportunity, and I'm, I really hope that your listeners are able to, you know, take a little nugget of advice that just sticks with them and, and challenges them to think a little bit differently and uh, try something new. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye. That was a great conversation with Marissa. I feel like I learned a lot, uh, and she just has a lot of great experience. And her her ending question there really, uh, I think, kind of hit the nail on the head of of what we've been hearing throughout the whole conversation of uh, of of what she's done and how she's thought about approaching her career. And I think that was really awesome. Yeah, she's got to figure it out in terms of um, what she. I don't know, not even what exactly she wants to do, but like how she's going to approach life to get to where she wants to be. You know what I mean? Like she's just she's got that. It's figured out. And I think that's fantastic. I don't know. You know what I mean? Cause it, it's sometimes the goal is like, I want, I want this job. And it's like her is like, I want to have this philosophy that's going to lead me to positions I want to be in. Like great. Brilliant. Um, yeah. So I guess there's, there's a huge takeaway there for me. Um, but I guess other takeaway, one other key takeaway, um, specifically that I really, really loved is the, uh, informational interview 
I mean, I think that's, I didn't bring it up, but like a cool part about the rotational program is getting you in the company. So then you can get opportunity to do the informational interviews. Like that's a interesting bonus of the rotational program that I hadn't thought about before is you're in the company. So you have options because you, you know, you could argue, how do you do an informational interview if you're not in the company, right? If you're just doing a, a generic job search, a little trickier, but you know, if you're doing it within a company, definitely informational interview, great option. Yeah, I definitely think so. It's it's one of those ways where if you want to learn about a specific job and not just see the job posting, uh, that's that's the best way to do it. Talk to someone who who does that job or or their manager as a as a, as a close second. Um, I I think we we talked about it a lot. All these projects she did, being in a team in undergrad, doing this program uh, in China, um, and then kind of the the rotational uh, program that she was in too. It's all about getting different experiences and working with a group of people to get it done. And I think uh, it's really important for people when they're in for for students when they're in college or when they're in early in their career. Uh, if there's an opportunity to work on a team on something else, you might want to take that because if you're just if you're just head down in the books all day or you're just head down at your computer at work and not thinking about what's going on around you and getting more experience with people, uh, you're missing opportunities. The, the people who are doing those experiences are the ones who are learning more, who are getting noticed, who are just going to kind of be better at what they're doing in general because it's not all about uh, you as a single person. It's about everything, uh, the team you're working with, the company, everything. And so having those experiences, working with people, super important. You're going to do that for the rest of your career, most likely, unless you do something on your own. Um, and so it's important to get as much of that experience as you can now because it's the sooner you have it, the the sooner you can use it um, and and just be better at, uh, at, I think, at your career in general. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Right. Well, hey, good to talk to you again, man. Another another episode. E by C. All Bye-bye. right. Sounds good. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engineer Your Career with Troy Bauman and Brennan Timrack. For more information about the show, visit our website at eycpodcast.com. There you can find show notes for each episode and get in touch with Troy and I. If you or someone you know are an engineer with an interesting or even not so interesting career journey and would like to be on the show, go on the website, send us a short bio, and we may just invite you to come on and share your story. And finally, if you want to show your support, please rate, review, like, or subscribe to the show on your podcast player of choice.